Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I'm Professor of Politics and Public Policy. And this is a series of short podcasts to accompany my series of blog posts, which introduce key public policy concepts and theories in 1,000 words. Now, this is the last one. Uh, this is on the psychology of policymaking. So have a look or listen to the one on bounded rationality, since we're almost coming full circle here. And then listen to some of the lectures on evidence-based policymaking, since it draws on these kinds of insights. So, you know, uh, as a sort of policy scholar, I'm no great expert on psychology, and, and neither of, are most of my colleagues, but we can do two things with key insights from that literature. Yeah, so such as uh, Kahneman's now famous phrase, thinking fast and slow. So what we can do is, first, we can show how they're incorporated into policy theories, and then second, we can identify the broader context in which people engage in such fast and slow thinking. So start with the fact that most policy theories identify bounded rationality, which on its own is little more than a truism. You know, so what does it mean? People do not have the time, resources and cognitive ability to consider all information, all possibilities, all policy solutions or anticipate all consequences of their actions. You know, it's, it's fairly straightforward. Consequently, they use informational shortcuts, perhaps to produce what Simon would call good enough decisions. So this is where a focus on psychology comes in to enhance our understanding, you know, to first describe the thought processes that people use to turn a complex world into something simple enough to understand uh, and, you know, respond to. And... Secondly, to compare types of thought process, such as, you know, the goal-orientated, reasoned, thoughtful behaviour versus the intuitive, gut, emotional or other heuristics we use to process and act on information quickly. So how do we describe that second point simply enough? Well, sometimes I call them rational and irrational ways of thinking, but, you know, only when I've only got very few words and you want to make sure people are listening. The other ways of thinking are, you know, uh, Kahneman's thinking fast and slow is often described system one and two thinking. So, so I quote, system one operates automatically and quickly with little or no effort and no sense of voluntary control. System two allocates attention to the effortful mental activities that demand it, including complex computations, dot, 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 often associated with the subjective experience of agency, choice, and concentration, end quote. Then you have Jonathan Haidt's idea that people make snap judgments initially, then they act like lawyers trying to buttress their own case. So, so two, two kinds of thinking, often quite similar to Kahneman's. So where does policy theory come in? Well, it seeks to situate these processes within a wider examination of policymaking systems and their environments, and it can perform two useful functions. One is we state that this is not just a small number of central policymakers involved making these important choices. And second, we say there are potential sources of influence on this fast and slow thinking. So note the... Uh, Familiar description of policy environments that I describe in, in other posts like, you know, 12 Things to Know and some of the lectures on evidence-based policymaking. So you have five things to look out for. One is that there is a wide range of actors making choices at many uh, levels and kinds of government. So not just a small group of central policymakers thinking fast and slow. Second thing you look for is the institutions or the rules, norms and practices that interact with these ways of thinking. So you might ask, you know, for example, do people seeking quick shortcuts simply follow rules within organisations? 
Then third, you have policy networks, the relationship between policymakers and the so-called pressure participants with which they consult and negotiate. So, for example, you might ask, do such arrangements help produce longer-term thinking or, or, you know, do people just follow the same kind of, you know, same kind of rule-bound behaviour that we see in institutions? Then fourth, you have ideas, a broad term to describe beliefs and the extent to which they're shared within groups, organisations, networks, political systems. So, you know, you might ask, do these beliefs, if they're, you know, deeply held, provide a well-established way of thinking, another shortcut to, you know, gathering information? And finally, we talk about context and events to describe the extent to which a policymaker's environment is in our control or how it influences her decisions or our thought process. You know, so you, you might ask, you know, do, do policymakers engage in, in fast thinking to respond quickly to crises and events? So these kinds of insights are important, uh, but see how tricky it is to incorporate them. So in practice, we need to make a choice between two kinds of study. One is you get into some depth on the psychology of individuals, such as specific policymakers, when we compare things like uh, the use of evidence. Second, we might try and zoom out to identify the same basic behaviour in a population. It allows us to look at uh, behaviour across a political system or a population as a whole. So look at the first one first. We focus on micro-level psychological processes to produce hypotheses or propositions regarding individual thought and action. There are many traits from which to choose when we focus on you know, system one or fast thinking or you know, a series of useful but imperfect cognitive shortcuts which develop over time as people learn from experience. So they include uh, the so-called availability heuristic, when people relate the size, frequency or probability of a problem to how easy it is to remember or imagine. The representativeness heuristic, when people overestimate the probability of events that are vivid in their mind. Prospect theory, when people value losses more than equivalent gains. Framing effects based on emotional and moral judgments, or you know, more simply, the presentation of information on things like risk. Confirmation bias, status quo bias, optimistic bias, optimism bias, or you know, unrealistic expectations about our aims working out well when we commit to them. A tendency to use exemplars of social groups to represent general experience and a so-called need for coherence and to establish patterns and causal relationships when they may not exist. And in the blog post, uh, you can follow that up with a, a link to Paul Lewis's paper. Now, if you focus on that availability heuristic, that also produces work on more recent studies of so-called processing fluency, which suggests that people's decisions are influenced by their familiarity with things. Now, our second choice is to treat these propositions as assumptions rather than delve into them, allowing us to build larger, say, macro-level models that produce other hypotheses. So we ask what would happen if these kinds of assumptions were true to allow us to theorise a social system containing huge numbers of people or focus on the influence of the system or environment uh, on decision-making. Now, on that point should remind you a bit of the discussion of rational choice theory, which started off with the idea that you could help explain things uh, starting off with very unrealistic, simple assumptions. Now, it makes sense to make them more realistic with reference to psychology. Uh, 
But consider how far you can go to, re to reduce simplicity and still maintain a manageable model. Now, that, that's not an easy uh, you know, question to answer. Instead, where do we go from here in a more you know, simple sense? Well, look at how these insights are used in different ways in the policy theory literature. So you have, for example, the Advocacy Coalition Framework explores the idea of the, the devil shift, you know, which, which is in part based on prospect theory, you know, the fear of losing out. Um, but in this case, you're talking about coalitions drawing on their emotions to romanticise their own cause and demonising their opponents, misperceiving their power, uh, their beliefs and motives. Then you have multiple streams analysis, punctuated equilibrium theory, uh, which focus on uncertainty and ambiguity that result from bounded rationality and explore the potential for policymaker attention to lurch dramatically from one problem to another. They identify framing strategies of actors. So this looks like you know, goal-orientated framing strategies to manipulate the fast thing thinking in other people. Now that point is taken up by the narrative policy framework, which identifies narratives or very simple stories used strategically to reinforce or oppose policy measures. And they talk about each narrative having a simple setting, character, plot and moral. And it's a bit like marketing. You know, people are, are uh, using persuasion based on appealing to an audience's beliefs you know, rather than the evidence. And people will pay attention to certain narratives because they're boundedly rational. They seek shortcuts to gather sufficient information, prone to accept simple stories that seem plausible, confirm their biases, exploit their emotions, and you know, maybe come from a, a source they trust or reinforce stuff they already know. And then finally, look at social construction of target populations, which argues that policymakers make quick, biased, emotional judgments, then back up their actions with selective facts, to institutionalise their understanding of a, a policy problem and its solution. And look back to how I described uh, Jonathan Haidt's type of work. In fact, increasingly they, 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 they quote that directly you know, to show you the, the strong links between policy theory and, and psychology studies. Okay, thank you.